I knew something was wrong in our home and I didn't know how to help him. And he couldn't get away from the church. Anytime I would say, um, let's get a vacation, let's get away, you need to rest. Uh, this is too much. Uh, he always brought up the church and how he couldn't leave. And I found myself right near the end before I had to go to a psychiatric hospital. I found myself preaching and saying words that didn't make sense. Instead of saying, hey Mitch, it's good to be with you today, I might be saying, hey Mitch, today be good today. Many people live their whole lives without a change because they think they can just get by and no one will know. But they're missing out because they don't have any peace in your life and joy and freedom because they're bound often to their own set of rules and it doesn't work. And so I would stuff my anger and I would never own it. And I would pray and ask God to forgive me for it. Hey everybody, I want to welcome you again to the Before You Quit podcast where we want to bring courage and perspective when serving gets hard and man does it get hard sometimes. My name is Mitch Schultz, I'm your host, I'm also the director of a ministry called Fruitful Vine Ministry. Hey, in this podcast we're going to talk about a really sensitive subject, the subject of depression, especially in the life of a pastor, and in this case I'm going to be interviewing a pastor and his wife who both suffered depression and burnout at the same time. An amazing story. And I hope one of the things that comes out of this, uh, as well as understanding the phenomena of depression and even the reality that uh, those who are called to serve and to encourage others also themselves face uh, hardships and face discouragement, uh, the fact is oftentimes pastors are uh, not expected or allowed to share that they struggle uh, but I hope one of the things that comes out of this is the value of encouraging, not just each other, uh, but the value of encouraging your pastor. Uh, I had a great conversation with someone this morning. I meet with a couple guys for a Bible study uh, once a week early in the morning, and one of the guys pulled me aside, and uh, we were just talking about ministry and encouraging pastors, and I think I made some comment about how sometimes people don't realize how hard it is to... Uh, to be a pastor, and he said, you know, yesterday um, I went to my church and knocked on the door of the pastor's office and went inside and just simply told him that I appreciated him and his ministry and appreciated his messages and how the Lord was using the preaching to encourage his heart. And I turned to my friend, I said, man, thanks so much for doing that, because uh, with a lot of things that pastors get, uh, that can diffuse uh, a lot of frustration, a lot of tension, uh, a small thing that can really lift and encourage a pastor. Uh, Thomas Rayner, in an article on pastors and depression, gives five reasons pastors fight depression, uh, possibly more than the average churchgoer even. Uh, one is unrealistic expectations. Secondly, uh, they have a greater platform for critics. Uh, third, there's a failure to take time on the part of the pastor away from church or place of ministry. Uh, that makes him sometimes a workaholic. It can lead to burnout, and burnout oftentimes leads to depression. Uh, sometimes marriage and family problems will cause discouragement and depression. Too often the pastor neglects his family because he's so concerned and committed to the larger church family. That can lead to uh, depression in the home, even the wife, uh, even children can sometimes face deep discouragement. 
another and final reason or contributor to uh, depression and discouragement can be financial strains. Many pastors simply don't have sufficient income from their churches to serve, and that makes it kind of hard. It was a real honor for me to sit down with Pastor Bob and Joan Galasso, his wife, as they tell their unbelievable story of both at the same time suffering depression. Uh, This is an honest story, but one that I think will show uh, what happens when two people put their full trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and how he even will use what they go through for his good and his glory. That certainly happened for Bob and Joan Galasso. Uh, They've been married for 44 years. They've been serving in ministry for 43 years. They have two sons and a daughter and 16 grandchildren. And I cannot wait for you to meet them and hear what they have to share about this important topic of depression. Excited to have Bobby and Joan Galasso on the phone with me. We're actually on a conference call using Zoom conference. They can see me. I cannot see them, and I wish it could be the other way around. But how are you guys doing? We're doing well, thank you. We are well today, thank you. And you guys are in St. Simon, beautiful area. How did you end up there? Wow, that's a story, but we're very happy to have ended up here. Um, So, John, this has been a dream of yours to be in St. Simon's? uh, Not really. That's what's so interesting about it. We were uh, here because of a ministry opportunity with some friends who uh, are here on the island for years. Okay. And so we came down here, and we were walking down a street to go to the water, and Bobby said, you know, we could live here. Oh, you guys were just visiting there, and you met yeah. somebody, and oh, that's, that's crazy. It was awesome. Yeah. Wow. How many times are you with your spouse, and you're somewhere, and you think, man, wouldn't it be great to live here? And you guys are one of the few that actually get to end up where you exactly. dreamed of being someday. Awesome. Well, hey, let's jump in uh, to the subject today. And as we do that, we'll enter into your story. We're, we're going to talk about depression and burnout in ministry. And you guys have, have an amazing story where you personally have experienced this. But you also have, and really out of your story, you've ministered to a lot of people that have experienced depression and burnout. And uh, we're going to take a bulk of this time listening to you tell your story. Uh, but Bobby, let me start with you. And in, in, you've been in a ministry that in the last 13, 14 years that has uh, helped pastors, pastors' wives, missionaries that go through tough times. What What is the one thing that you could say looking back that uh, people in ministry struggle with the most? I would say choosing to and finding someone they could tell the truth to about how they're doing and actually talk about their feelings, not just about their work. Okay, so struggling and not having that in their life. Or choosing to risk it with someone without reprisal and that someone would really listen to them, not judge them. Okay, okay. Okay, that, that's, that's fascinating because um, that probably lends itself to pastors choosing to be isolated rather than vulnerable for fear of, fear of what? For fear of being isolated even more so because others would, would label them, uh, mm-hmm. criticize them, or lose their job. Uh, so, some pastors are good with friendships. Others choose not to go that route and just stay surfacy and protect themselves. 
Yeah. Yeah. Friendships and ministry is one of the subjects that I've been uh, blogging and talking about. And uh, I think what we're going to talk about today will will certainly weave around that uh, particular subject. Uh, John, how much do you see depression in, um, in ministry and the experiences you've had with people? Uh, how often do you bump into that as being one of the hard things pastors, pastors' wives deal with? Uh, to be honest with you, Mitch, I haven't come across it much, but I, I know it's there. Hmm. Uh, I think that it's hard for people to come forward when they're experiencing those hard places and they are uh, becoming overwhelmed and depressed. Hmm. It's hard for them to reach out. Um, we welcome it. We, we speak to people and we encourage that. But very seldom does anyone come to us with it. Yeah, and one of the one of the, I mean, depression by by definition is is um, the inability to uh, let others in your life. It's it's being isolated, it's being alone, and uh, and oftentimes that feeds depression. So so for someone to, and and this will be a, probably a, a part of your story. Uh, we'll hear this in your story, uh, John. What do you what do you see people do when they emerge out of depression? What does it take? Uh, openness, mm -hmm. vulnerability, not hiding, being mm -hmm. honest. Uh, yes, just and just being open with how you're feeling and not stuffing all that inside you. Okay, let's uh, let's take that kind of framework and understanding that depression, burnout is real, but. It's not often talked about, even in your ministry, where you're helping a lot of people in ministry. You didn't see it that much, but you know it's there. But it was definitely a huge part of your story. Um, Bobby, you, you guys, uh, talk, talk to us just really briefly about what, what you did uh, the last, I think, 13, 14 years of your, your ministry career. And then let's just start hearing your story of what led to that. And I'd love to hear from both of you. Up until a year ago, we just closed out a ministry called Alive in Christ, and basically we were about encouraging others in ministry who needed to regain their passion and empowerment for Christian service. It was totally a faith-based ministry, and we were privileged to minister for 12 years to uh, missionaries in Spain. Uh, also, were involved in Kenya and some other places, but primarily we liked to go to people and places that were out of the way and where we would build relationships and continue to go and see them again so that a trust level would be built. And among those people, both coming to our home or us going to them, we found that uh, the need was great, but people had to believe we would come back and not just see them one time. They would ask sometime, will you be here another time? Mm. So we saw the frequency. Also, we took a lot of initiative with people. And based on their response or lack of it, we would go further. Yeah, yeah. Well, we uh, we met with you both. You came to our house in Franklin, North Carolina, about three, three and a half years ago because we were just at the beginning of starting a very similar ministry, a Fruitful Vine Ministry, which is uh, what I'm doing now. And you both spent four days in our home and coached us and mentored us and prepared us for this and it, it was rich uh, having that time with you. And, and we received, uh, really, we were on the receiving end of your ministry, even though you were there to kind of train us and prepare us. It was, it, we saw what you did, and it, it was so 
so encouraging. Uh, Joni, let's let's talk about what you went through um, early on in ministry, really, with with depression. And Bobby, the other day, uh, you corrected me because I said you both had suffered with depression at the same time, and you said no, I I suffered more from burnout. Joan more with depression. Uh, let me just open it up for you guys to tell your story, and and uh, let's just walk through that together. Okay. Um... I met Bobby in college back in 1971, and we married in 1973 in November and began ministry and life together. He went into um, Youth for Christ and later on into church work in Atlanta, Georgia, and we began um, in the pastorate together. About, what year was that? 1988. 1988 is when we hit our wall. Um, Mm. I was 35 years old, Bobby's 36, and we had our three children, and he he began to fall apart and ended up in a hospital as a result of that. And when you say fall apart, what, uh, what was happening? And Bobby, you can, you know, this, this is a conversation. We can dialogue together uh, on, on the story. What, what was happening that you would describe as falling apart? Why don't you share that? For me, I, I began to realize I had a problem. I was about 37, pastoring a church of about 90 people, but I was so driven that I found myself when I first went there, I was working about 45 hours a week. And after three and a half years, I was working 80 hours a week, six days, six nights, uh, not because of the load of work, but I had this need to please people. Mm. It didn't come from the church to, to tell you my own responsibility in it. And I found myself right near the end before I had to go to a psychiatric hospital, I found myself preaching and saying words that didn't make sense Instead of saying, hey, Mitch, it's good to be with you today, I might be saying, hey, Mitch, today, be good today. Things, mm. And I heard it from the pulpit, and I knew things were there. And the, the climax happened when, uh, back in those days, evangelism explosion was a big thing, and I was training people on a Friday night, and I was aware that it was not going well. <laughs> and I remember saying to them that Friday night, this isn't going well. Being mm. church people, they lied to me and smiled and shook their head and say, oh, no, everything's fine. Interesting. And I recognized the wreck that I was, totally undone. She wouldn't let me drive home. She says, I'm driving you home to your wife. And it's at that point that I realized I handed my daytimer over. And when mm. I did that, it was like a piece of my life of control. I said, I'm done. Hmm. And Johnny, you mentioned that he ended up in the hospital. Um, That's right. That was pretty bad then. Things got pretty bad. Really bad. And I knew something was wrong in our home. um, And I didn't know how to help it. And he couldn't get away from the church. Anytime I would say, um, let's get a vacation. Let's get away. You need to rest. Uh, This is too much. Uh, He always brought up the church and how he couldn't leave and all the uh, uh, responsibilities he had. So yes, now uh, we're in a place where we have no choice and he has to be in this hospital. I really didn't know what was happening. I was totally in the dark about it. Uh, I thought that he was just going to go get some rest in this place. And I was just the beginning. 
Yes. I, I was just numb. Mm. And uh, thank God for this friend who knew what we were struggling with because I, I didn't have a clue. Mm. And so I just did what uh, we were, I was told. And uh, we put Bobby in this place and I remember telling him, um, okay, now it's my turn to be here for you. You've always been, been there for me and the family and now it's my turn to be there for you. And I'll try to explain things to the church. I'll be there for the kids and you just take it easy and get better. Uh, little did I know that uh, my own life was uh, being so impacted by this, I couldn't bear the weight of um, his life falling apart. Mm. I just fell apart myself. It wasn't, uh, what, a month later that he came home in a pass because we were going to take the kids out to the beach and enjoy a day out together. And uh, he asked me how I was doing, and I just fell apart and started crying and told him it was awful uh, because I had uh, totally withdrawn couldn't go to the church like I thought, um, withdrew from all the people, uh, wasn't eating, wasn't de dealing with the children well at all. I was yelling at them at, the, at a drop of the hat, taking myself into a closet and curling up in a ball and crying my eyes out. Um, I couldn't handle it. I, I was totally breaking down and I did not know where to turn. Uh, I was the pastor's wife and I, I didn't know where to go, and I didn't know who to tell. So uh, all this came out of me when he asked me how I was doing. How old were your children at that time? Uh, they were 11, 9, and 7. What, as you look back, well, how were they reacting to this? Uh, they were just being kids. I'm sure they were in the dark. I did not try too much to see how they were because I was so broken. I didn't even know how to reach out to see how they were doing. Um, so. Uh, yeah, children are awfully resilient, aren't they? Yes, and that's a little nebulous to me right now. How yeah. They hmm. Can I give you two brief instances that will share a turnaround? That, that, that would be helpful. Great. Yes. In, in the hospital, I was there for 42 days in a voluntary lockup facility. There was a private hospital Although it wasn't Christian in nature, um, there was truth there. I believe mm -hmm. God's truth breaks through any names or titles. And two instances, this, to this day, it's changed my life. Every day for two and a half hours before supper, we had to go through a, a very intense group therapy session. So I'm in there. People are banging their head against the wall, guys in a straight jacket, people there on their exa, and Pastor Bob. And I say that tongue in cheek mm -hmm. because I was so fouled up in my thinking, Mitch. I was trying to help other patients while I was one. In the session, there's about eight of us in this group. A 19-year-old girl looked me right in the eye and said, when are you going to stop being a pastor and be a person? Mm. Ouch. I didn't know her well enough to hate wow. her, but I hated what she said. Mm -hmm. and I told her, and then I went back to her and said, this was the truth. Second turning point, a social worker was after me and she said, I want to talk to you. Sometime later, we sat across from each other about two feet. She said what I thought was a piece of cake question. But at this point in my life, not only did I not have any answers, I didn't even know what the questions were. She said, Bob, who are you? Hmm. So I gave her 15 minutes of pastor talk. Blah, 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 blah. This is what I do. She didn't blink an eye. She said, that's not what I asked you. 
She said, who are you? I gave her 10 minutes of father-husband talk. Love my wife, three kids. Now, Mitch, I want out, but I'm in a lockup facility and I can't get out. Mm-hmm. I can smile about it now, but I was squirming in that chair. The third time she said, I'm asking you, who are you? I put my hands in front of my eyes and I wept like a child and I called her by name and I said, I gave my life to Christ at six years old. I'm 37. Don't have a clue who I am. Mm. The Holy Spirit took those two examples of brute honesty to this day that has stayed in mm. his life. So that was, that was the turning point for, for you. For me. Mm. Even though it took me about five years to, to really work through this, that's what got my attention. So coinciding with that, uh, Joan, you're regressing. Uh, let's pick up with your story. What's happening to you? As that's happening to Bobby, what's happening to you? Okay, so I end up having to be hospitalized with clinical depression. Um, so, so were you both in the hospital at the same time for a while? Exactly, exactly what happened, Mitch. Uh, Bobby took me to the hospital, didn't know what else to do with me. He's a patient himself. And so he has me speak to them and uh, they analyze me. They go through um, what's going on with me and realize that I have clinical depression and it's not good for me to be at home alone with my children. Mm-hmm. So I need to be hospitalized as well. And they put me in a different unit, of course, because they didn't want to put us together. Same hospital, though. Same hospital, but a a different unit. I was put in the uh, lockdown unit. And uh, that was quite an experience. And, um, yeah, so and I'm still at this point very numb. I really, it was hard days. I really didn't know what was wrong. Mm. And was miserable inside, a hopeless uh, really shut down and, and didn't understand what was going on and how I was here at all. Mm. So it was very hard, very hard. Um, for me, Mitch, this first hospitalization was uh, an education. Uh, it's really uh, a place where I learned about being human. Uh, we have thoughts, we have feelings, and I didn't deal with them in a healthy way. Mm. I stuffed all my feelings. I saw them as sin. <clears throat> I saw them as displeasing to God and not being a good Christian. Um, so I stuffed everything I ever thought and felt mm. and uh, didn't, didn't deal with it. And so I learned that depression is a lot of repressed anger. It's uh, not dealing with your feelings mm. and your thoughts. And so I, I learned to make some connections in this uh, hospital. And uh, really, I, I put it as being an education for me. Hmm. Johnny, you, you used the word numb a few times to describe hmm. what that was like at that time. You know, we, we go to a dentist or have surgery, essentially you numb the area so that the hard stuff can happen. And then eventually when the numbness wear off, wears off, the, uh, you, you feel the pain. Um, what, what was that like for you as the numbness wore off? What pain did you start to to feel because there was a kind of a surgery happening in your life, but you started to feel things once that numbness wore off. What, what was that? Um, again, that is such a good question. I think that, uh, the numbness for me went so deep that it, mm. it took a lot for me to start allowing, uh, all that was inside me to come up 
because that's what um, made me real, uh, made me feel. Um, so that took a while for to happen. I don't know that it really completely happened in my first hospitalization, but um, it began to because mm. I began to realize that I have thoughts and feelings, and that's part of make, what makes me who I am. Mm. And I've been denying such a big part of myself. And that became very wow to me um, to start owning. I was in denial, you know, and repression still for quite a while. So it was towards the middle, near the end of my six weeks that I began to realize, you know, I, I do have feelings. I do get angry and I can share them and I can say how it is for me. So that was very freeing. And that helped me a lot. And that numbness started to go away, uh, not without a lot of um, tears and anguish uh, to get me to deal with my reality. But it was good when I did. You know, I picture a husband and wife leaning on each other, uh, as so often happens with all of us when one is weak, the other one is there strong. Other times it's the other who's weak. And, uh, you know, we kind of trade places. You're both at a very low place here. Uh, were you were you communicating with each other? Were you checking up on each other? In the hospital, we couldn't. There was no connection. We were in two. We had no idea. No idea what was happening to the. Well, your, your beforehand, I you know I could talk. That was the days before cell phones and everything. So occasionally I, they would let me, you know, like maybe have a call home. But basically, they want you to work on yourself, mm -hmm. which is really important. Uh, when Joni came back out of the hospital, two weeks after me, I was. You know, her folks came and released them to go back. I was there with my kids. And then when she came back after a short period of time, I went back to work part-time, but things were still not well. And I sensed in my heart, I'm believing it's God because I would not have this thought. In the spring, about three months later, I just felt compelled to say to her, are you making plans to harm yourself? Mm. And then she said to me, how did you know? Mm. And she was making plans to possibly take her life. Mm. And that's when she went in the second time and got dealt with a real change. That's when the change was complete. Yes. How long after the first time were you in the second time, Joan? I came out in uh, November before in 88, uh, mm -hmm. Thanksgiving time. I was home. Uh, so I went back in uh, the second time in, I think it End was of April, April of 89. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yes. I want you to reflect on, on two questions with me here as we, we try to unpack this, this um, phenomena of depression and burnout. Uh, the first is what, is, and you've had plenty of time to, to learn from this and also uh, kind of reflect on its implication on other people as you observe them. But what, in, in the best way you can, in a summary way, what contributed to this? I mean, how, how, how would you explain this? Hmm. For me, um, burnout is a clear result of life without boundaries. But Bobby, people, pastors are as busy as you were and they don't all end up where you did. No, but a lot What's, of... What concerns you with that? Is, a is lot you, of them, and I'm not saying all, but mm. many of them, because I've known some of them, uh, 
continue not to have boundaries and feel the Superman complex, Messiah complex, whatever, and can give the appearance of cranking out work, can get a lot done. But when the boundaries are not in place for fear of offending people or whatever the reason is, we're never true to ourself. Mm -hmm. So many people, men and women, don't deal with their inner heart, their inner feelings, because they'll say, well, I can look at that later. What boundaries has done for me, it has given me a healthy sense of now giving a shorter answer when asked for something. I used to say yes or no and give <laughs> 12 or 15 sentences why in a rationale. Mm -hmm. Now I have a clear understanding that I can just say yes or I can say no. And even though everyone doesn't wind up in the hospital, many people live their whole lives without a change because they think they can just get by and no one will know. But they're missing out because they don't have any peace in their life and joy and freedom because they're bound often to their own set of rules and it doesn't work. So for you, your hospital experience was your redemption and many don't have that. Um, a breaking point is not always bad, is it? Uh, because it, it is, there's, a, there's a death that takes place. You know, yeah. talk, we talk a lot about the gospel, uh, the implications, impact of the gospel on every aspect of life. And as we come to understand what Jesus did for us, uh, the, it brings about a death to self. And that's what happened to you. There was I'll a, be very you know, blunt with you, Mick. For me, I went through a huge shameful time. Mm. Because up until that time, and I'm going to really say it like it is, my entire life, and I was not a success story anyway, so it's no big deal. But my entire life was based by my choice on the role. I would meet people, and instead of saying my name, I would tell them what I did. Mm -hmm. I was foolish mm -hmm. back. Yeah. In that experience, the shame was so strong that God allowed me to recognize I no longer have to live in a role, and I can be free to be a person. That was the beginning of that layer coming off without having ever to put it back on again. Yeah, it scares me sometimes. I'll meet a young pastor and you, you know, I try to engage with them and very quickly what they talk about is their um, their church, the size of their church. I'm like, I don't care. I want to I want to get to know you. Yeah. you know? Um, how was the, how was the church, uh, how did the church react? How much were you telling the church at this time about we what was going a, on? We made a mistake. I, I can take responsibility, I guess, but I can't in another way. Cause I, we didn't know what was going on. Uh, someone protected us on the one hand, but on the other hand, the church didn't have access to us. Mm -hmm. <laughs> My district superintendent called and he was given the answer by law. They have to tell you, we cannot confirm or deny they're here. So I've got everyone from the top level boss over three states to the local people who aren't allowed to know where we're staying. And so basically there was so much upsetness and confusion. When I went back part time, a couple said to me, we want to see you. And I said, sure, come on in. And I understand their point of view, although it hurt me. They said, Pastor Bob, we can no longer come because you are our pastor. This should have never happened to you. And that gave me such an understanding of not their position. The hurt was great for me because it was like, I see certain of us are allowed to go through experiences, but mm -hmm. certain of us are not. And it, mm -hmm. it just stayed with me, even sharing this now, mm -hmm. years later, it, it, it gave me even more of a desire 
as my realness began to come through of coming along other side people where they could just tell the truth and, and, and let the chips fall where they may because God's big enough to handle that even though we aren't. Yeah. Well, that goes back to Joan's um, comment on, on depression that we, we, you know, a lot of people don't share about it because there's this fear of, uh, you know, people changing their perception of you mm-hmm. and their expectation of you. So you wish you would have done what? Uh, if I, if I, if I could have, I wish that there would have been a clearer communication with the church in terms of uh, this is where they are in time. Uh, they'll get back to you. Mm-hmm. Um, because what happened was someone just took over as they needed to. Mm-hmm. Uh, and what happened was because of lack of information, we use this term a lot with ourselves and others that we come alongside. We have found, Mitch, that people will always fill in the blanks when they don't know what they Oh, the imagination know. runs wild, absolutely. That probably yeah. happened, and there was... So basically, not to the fault of anyone, I'm not defending them or accusing them, I'm just saying because of lack of information and uncertainty, we basically were left alone. We were so, not... So do you, do you think it's wise that, uh, okay, a pastor is going through depression, he needs a time away that he tells the church, or the church is told, hey, your pastor's struggling with depression... And he's getting help. Is that healthy? I think if he can't do it because of where he's at, he should be willing to give permission to someone who could speak on his behalf and give enough information without necessarily having to give all the things that might be incriminating to the family Mm -hmm. and say, our pastor is going through this because we love him and his wife, et cetera. We're going to allow them the time. And then we're going to get maybe some help for like yourself from an outside resource to come in that can help us through this, where the issue is not get him back in the pulpit as soon as possible, but let him and his wife get healed in time and let the church function alongside, but without pulling on him. Yeah, they they participate in your healing, and how can they if they have no idea what's going on? I would have loved that, but didn't didn't even know how. Well, I I totally agree with you that that should be the way it is, but I can tell you it's rarely done that way. Usually we're protecting the pastor and we're preserving the church. Um, I remember when I, when I gave a letter of resignation at a church that I was at, uh, the leadership um, over us had instructed us to read the letter and then go out the back door. In other words, you know, read the letter and run. And we said, no way. And so we read the letter and two to 300 people lined up Wow. And uh, it, it was literally an hour and a half of us just embracing and crying together. And what that did is it allowed people to share uh, the pain of what we were going through. And uh, so I'm, I'm a big proponent um, in, in honesty. Um, you know, there has to be cautions there. What, what cautions, I mean, how, when can someone overdo that? See, what happened with us was, uh, real briefly, is when we realized that Joni had to be put in the second time mm-hmm. and I was just getting going part time, I called my district superintendent and said, my wife has to go in the hospital. There was no closure with the church. Mm-hmm. There was no final message. There was mm-hmm. no potluck dinner. There was mm-hmm. no seeing people at the door. I never went back. Mm-hmm. I had to become Mr. Mom to three kids, started painting houses again on the side. And we gave her the freedom to get the healing, but I could not do both. So, mm-hmm. One Sunday, they see me preaching without any alluding to anything, and he never comes back again. 
His wife goes in another hospital, and I just called my superintendent and said, I can't go back. That was, the, that was it. That was the last time of any connectedness. It was definitely at his greatest. Yeah. Do, do you sometimes uh, look at pastors, perhaps through your ministry, perhaps just observing, and, and you say, that's me? But I try not to say it to them because I, I, say <laughs> I hope not. I say it to myself because I don't want to project on them. And many of them that I've talked to said, oh, that's you. That could never happen to me. And I hope that's true. But on the other hand, this is what I like about Fruitful Vine. This is what I like about people with a heart that have come through hurt. At least if there would be an opportunity for a dialogue where people can say, I may not be you. But you know, there's some classic symptoms that I'm seeing that maybe you can help me not be you mm -hmm. fully. Does that, does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. And back to the subject of, of disclosure, you know, how much do you disclose? I, I'm a proponent for at least having your leadership uh, fully involved in, in what you're going through. And uh, that the, the disclosure is at least with your leaders and then invite them to be part of, part of the healing and then they guide you as a pastor in, in how much is communicated with the church. And that can even, I mean, this is not just in the arena of depression, burnout. It can be when there's a physical illness, when there's even moral failure and there's been a sudden change. Uh, it's, it's so important to be honest and open with the congregation because they're, they're dealing with this too. You know, they, they look to you. Uh, they appreciate you as their pastor. Uh, they're connected to you. They're family. I mean, you're family. Exactly. And you don't just walk away from family. And every family has sort of a dynamic and a rhythm of how they uh -huh. communicate with each other and, and, and struggle. I mean, when, when we face loss, you know, my oldest son was dying of cancer. You know, the way I talked to my younger two kids was different than how I might have talked to my brother or my sister about it. I mean, you, you, you yeah. kind of determine how much, you discern how much you say, but it's, a, it's at an amount and a level that they can handle. But it's necessary for them to be healthy in their response, but also inviting them to be part of, uh, part of the healing. Um, so, okay, that, that answers the first question, what led up to that. Uh, for you, John, just briefly, perhaps, what, how would, as you look back, how, how did this happen to you? Well, I believe that my depression um, came from my family growing up in my family. Uh, it wasn't just the church and what was going on there that things began to impact me and depress me, no. It, as I went into therapy and into these treatment centers and began um, kind of looking inside my life and processing and then working with me, my therapists and all, I found that a lot of my difficulty had come from even growing up and the messages that I had caught in my home and um, taken with inside myself had really put me on a path to unhealthy, what I say is unhealthy living. And for years just didn't believe that um, I could fully express what I thought and felt. And it kept me from early on in my life um, just living to be a, a, a good child and getting my love and acceptance through being good, 
behaving, mm-hmm. doing mm-hmm. things right. And to do all that, um, you have to stuff a lot. Uh, big message I got in my home is anger is sinful. And Christian people don't get angry. And so I would stuff my anger, and I would never own it. And I would pray and ask God to forgive me for it, um, like it was a sin. And so I, I think I began to struggle early on and just continued to um, put on uh, Christian beliefs and what the Bible said um, as a way of trying to live. But I really wasn't living the truth. I, I thought I was. Um, according to my own thinking, which was really um, not healthy. And so it didn't come out in healthy living at all. Meanwhile, you're dying inside. Exactly. And I'm using God's word to clamp myself. Yeah, yeah, that's a facade, isn't it? So when when the numbness wore off, what role did anger have? Uh, Did you permit yourself to be angry? Was was anger part of your healing? Uh, yes, um, finally. <laughs> sure was. <laughs> oh, my word. Bobby, it was good to see her angry, huh? Uh, yes. <laughs> oh, it was like, oh, oh, it was wonderful to be able to say I'm angry. I remember a session when we're in therapy, and you're dealing with so much because this has been years of living like this. Mm. Okay, so now um, in this session, it was so funny. There's a mattress on the floor, and we're given these Nerf bats when we come in the room. And I'm wondering what in the world. And so we're sitting there. Now I'm somebody who who doesn't uh, do this thing. You know, <laughs> I don't get angry, and I try to contain my emotions and you know all this. And I'm what in the world are we going to do? So what we have to do is start connecting. And and so we were told. I can't exactly remember how um, this came out of us, but we were like given some things to think about. And what did this, what did we feel inside when we heard these words or, and begin to make connections in our family life towards different situations. And as these feelings really started to come up in me, I was to take this bat and beat the mattress Mm. every time, you know, something strong came up in my, in my heart. And uh, before I knew it, I was really beating this mattress and letting all kinds of feelings started connecting with me. Uh, And anger, a lot of anger uh, started coming out and not having to justify it, uh, but just to own it Mm -hmm. and say, yeah, this is how I feel. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you were were playing biblical Nerf bat where <laughs> Paul says in Romans, put to death, therefore, or in Colossians, those things that belong to your earthly nature. Mm-hmm. And he mentions anger and other things with yeah. that. Uh, and before we can be really filled with the peace and love of God, we've got to get rid of certain feelings and certain things that are in the way of really experiencing yes. his peace. So I had to get rid of all this trash. It, Bobby, how how... How was Joan different after this? I know it took some time to, you know, develop a new mm-hmm. habit. I brought her back home from the hospital the second time. Mm-hmm. She was a 16-year-old that never was. Wow. <laughs> so I'm dealing with, she's rocking around the house. She's dancing around with my daughter. I'm having a good time, but scratching my head. And then it leveled off after a while. Mm-hmm. And we got, and when I say free, I mean in a good holistic way. Mm-hmm. We both were getting freed up. Uh, simultaneously 
uh, separately and then together. I had been pushing her for years to just what mm -hmm. we might call fight fair to, yeah. to, to say her stuff to whatever. Cause I grew up the opposite man. everything was there. And so initially it was like, Whoa, this is too much. But then as it leveled out, it was like, we were equal. We had an equal voice and we began to enjoy each other's honesty. Uh, even though it was like new at times, it was better than the hidden stuff. Mm. It was better than the squelch stuff. And so the healing on the other side has been phenomenal. It, it, it took work, though, I imagine. But you both were, were you, now you were able to help each other out. Yes. 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 It's amazing. It's a, you know, I, uh, it's, it's rare that you hear a, a story where something like this is happening to two people mm -hmm. uh, simultaneously as well. And, and amazing that it did not collapse and fall apart completely. Uh, no doubt the Holy Spirit was holding your world together. Absolutely. And, and Jesus was, was sustaining you and um, keeping you from collapsing. And uh, it's just, uh, it's an amazing story. How, how has the Lord been able to use your experience in your ministry to others in ministry? I would say for me, identification, very brief example. Our first assignment in the new work we used to do was in Taiwan. And we were ministering to missionaries out there. And a gal came knocking on our door, career missionary, Chinese, husband's Korean, weeping. She says, can I talk to you? This was back in 2002. And she said, we were just telling our story. And she's weeping uncontrollably. She says, Bob and Joan, I found out today that I can be transparent, vulnerable. Mm. As a career missionary, I never gave myself permission to do that. And I realized there's value in that. And God has given us the ability to literally weep with those who weep, often in silence, mm. not always advice, but that coming alongside through identification. We identified with people who went to the tsunami in India, different situations to just, I'm finding, to be available. It's like Job's friends who got, you know, they got a bad rap, but the first few days they did what is amazing. Yeah, they weren't all bad. <laughs> no, that's my point. Yeah. That's, we do a lot of that, and that has opened the door. Our numbers don't matter. They're relatively small, but we are blessed to go deep with people who want to go there. And the identification mm -hmm. has actually opened the door to others who said, wow, I, there's someone else like me. Yeah. Yeah. I've, I've appreciated, I've tried to model uh, what I do from what I've learned from you guys, a, a lot of listening, a lot of affirming, mm -hmm. uh, you know, questions that don't necessarily require a, an easy cliche answers mm. and, uh, and great follow up to, um, you know, I, I, I've been very, very encouraged with that. Um, you know, Bobby, you were, you were my youth pastor um, when I was, 16 years old, I moved to Atlanta, and I think for about two years, you were my youth pastor. And I, I don't know when it was, probably 10, 15 years ago, I hadn't seen you for 25 years or more, and I bumped into you in an elevator at a convention for our denomination, and uh, it was the first time we'd seen each other uh, again since I was a youth, a teenager. And um, and and I had heard your story, and I, I made some comments about how appreciative I was that, that you both were doing well. 
And then I shared this with you, and, and I don't know if you remember this, but you broke down in tears, not break down. I mean, you were, you were teary when I said this, but I shared with you that uh, when you were my youth pastor, you were the one instrumental in my call into ministry. And that was a very tough time in my life. And, and you, were, you were like, Mitch, I, I thought I wasn't doing anything good at that time. And um, it, it's just amazing how our lives have reconnected and uh, I've been able to to see what's happened in your life with everything we've gone through. Your story has been a, a tremendous encouragement to me. Uh, so uh, I, I, I appreciate you both sharing your story and um, and being open and raw about it. And I know you're retired, but you're busy and used by the Lord and in a very purposeful way now, aren't you, where you are? Feel free to, yes. if anyone wants to, to, to identify with this identification, we actually have the time now and we love people coming to our home and we're just available just, just to love on people and to listen to them. Well, I can't picture two better people to, uh, to offer that and for people to take advantage of that. Well, I think we'll, uh, we'll wrap it up there. We, we covered a lot and uh, I know that this will be an encouragement to, to a lot of people. And uh, trust that it'll give courage for people to step out and say, you know what, I, I can't live like this. I need help. Mm. Um, I was looking over some material this morning, and some people struggle. I know my father-in-law struggled with these statistics until he actually saw them verified. The 70% of pastors fight, fight chronic depression. Wow. Uh, 50% of pastors are so discouraged that they would leave the ministry if they could, but have no other way of making a living. Mm-hmm. And 1,500 pastors leave the ministry each month due to moral failure, spiritual burnout, or contention in their churches. And uh, you are uh, one of a few who are trying to change that. It's one of the things that we're trying to do through our ministry. Um, but uh, yeah, pretty striking, isn't it? Yes. It has yes, been it said, is. Mitch, just in closing, from my point of view, it, it has been said that um, God can do amazing things with a broken heart if we give him all the pieces. Mm-hmm. I, mm-hmm. I believe a lot of our healing is directly related to who we give the pieces to. Mm-hmm. If we look Wonderful. to each other to do what he can do. It's not going to happen. Yeah. So that's mm-hmm. our direction. Yeah. Good closing words. Well, I love you guys. Thanks for sharing your story. Thank, Thank you so you. much. Take care. Bye-bye. Well, I want to thank you again for listening. Uh, Great interview, great perspective. I hope that was challenging and encouraging to you. Uh, Hey, share this with your pastor. Let your elders know about it. Uh, Share it on Facebook. Um, I also need to be encouraging more people to go to iTunes if you listen to the podcast on iTunes and um, like us on iTunes. Uh, Write a comment or a review there. That's going to help to get the word out about uh, Before You Quit podcast, as well as the blogs that you'll find at our website, www.beforeyouquit.us. Uh, If you want to write to me and talk about anything that has been part of this discussion today or have any questions, you can email me at mitch at beforeyouquit.us. So until next week, hey, stay encouraged, be courageous, because serving Jesus is worth all that hard stuff that comes with it. 
And remember again what we're told in 1 Corinthians 15, 57 through 58. But thanks be to God. He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. So until next time, stay encouraged. 